All right. Shall we read together from the book of Colossians, from verse 15? This is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Uh, Last week... As I was speaking, I was saying that this letter is written to the church at Colossae, is a newish church in a slightly out-of-the-way place, and Paul wrote to them to connect them in to the bigger picture of what God was doing in their region and around the world. What was going on in their region was an apostolic movement that was planting churches under Paul's oversight. What was going on globally and continues today is a global gospel movement where the gospel is going out uh, into all the world. And so Paul was answering last week the questions for, of this church, uh, what is our place and where do we fit? And he's continuing to answer those kinds of questions this week. This question of where exactly then do we fit in? But rather than answering that in terms of geography, what he's answering it, uh, how he's answering it in these verses is on a cosmic scale. Where do we fit in the cosmos? And we might ask a question ourselves that they were asking then. Where do we fit alongside other faiths? It's all kinds of different things that people believe in. Where does our faith in Jesus fit in amongst all of that. And Paul gets at these issues by describing who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Uh, Christianity, obviously enough, is all about Jesus Christ. And these few verses provide one of the most complete and one of the deepest statements about Christ in the whole of the New Testament. So when I 
realised I needed to share something from these verses this morning. My challenge was not really whether there would be anything to say, but whether I could take the huge mass of everything that could spring out of these verses and bring it into any kind of order to leave us anything other than overawed and bamboozled. Because there is a huge, huge amount in these verses. So I have got a little bit of order to it. Um, I'm not going to say everything that could be said, but the things that I'm going to say are there and they are true. So here we go. I'm talking about creatures and creation. Um, I'll explain that elephant in just a minute. Uh, it, uh, It will make sense in just a minute. The question that you might have had, even as I started reading, was what does it mean to be the image of the invisible God? How can an invisible God look like anything? Is it invisible? Uh, The way that the word here is used is not to mean that God can never be seen, just that we can't see him. It's like he's in the next room and we just can't see through the wall to him. Uh, But Jesus is like a mirror in the hallway. Through uh, We can look out and in Jesus we can see the invisible God. This phrase, image of God, ought to remind those of us who've read uh, the creation stories of those creation stories. Uh, It says in Genesis chapter 1 that Adam was made in the image of God. Actually, men and women were made in the image of God and given rule over all creation given charge of creation. So where it says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, it's recalling that scripture in Genesis, the creation of humanity. When humanity was made perfect, and before we sinned, we were in the image of God, our ancestors were in the image of God, and had authority over all creation. And so Paul is picking that up. And yet Jesus is so much more than just another Adam. It's not just that he is like Adam. He's not just a new person in some new garden of Eden. Because in verse 15, it says something of Jesus which was never said of Adam or Eve or any other person in human history. It says in verse 19 that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. There was a measure of the image of God in Adam and Eve. They were like God, but not on, not on the scale, not in the way that Jesus is the image of God. The Apostle John wrote in, in John 1 and verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. No one has ever seen God and seen his, seen what he really looks like, except Jesus. Jesus is the one and only Son who has not only seen the Father, but is himself the exact representation of the Father. And John writes, this one and only Son, the one who has seen God, And, as John puts it, who is himself God, 
and is in the closest possible relationship with the Father, he has made God known. And so when we look at Jesus, we see what God is really like. We really do. Not some shadow or some part. We see in Jesus what God, who is otherwise invisible to us, is really like. Which brings us to the elephant. Some of you will have heard it said of different religions that it's like blind people trying to grab hold of an elephant. Some of you haven't heard anything. What are you talking about? (laughs) See, the story is told. The story is told that there were a number of blind men who found an elephant, which makes the mind boggle to begin with. But on finding this elephant, it was clearly quite a placid elephant because they were able to grab hold of it and to grab hold of different parts of it. And the blind man who grabbed hold of the trunk said, oh, it's a snake. And the blind man who grabbed hold of a leg, it was clearly standing still, said, oh, it's a tree. The blind man who grabbed hold of the tail said, it's a giraffe. The blind man who grabbed, sort of patted the side of it said, oh, it's a really big rhino. And the point that someone's trying to make through that story is God is beyond anyone's understanding and all the different religions have their own little bit. We think that the bit that we've seen is the whole deal, but actually God's bigger than all of it. That's the kind of thinking that underlies the idea that all religions lead to God and says, well, you know, it's arrogant of you to think that you know the whole thing. We're all limited, and so, we go, so it goes on. And that image really doesn't work. On several, I mean, rationally, it doesn't work, because what we have different religions saying is not, I've got a snake, I've got a giraffe. What we have is religions that say, God is personal and loves us, and other religions saying, God is impersonal, and we don't know what he feels at all. So the things contradict they, they don't all, it's not just that we have jigsaw pieces that could be put together. The truth is they don't all fit together. They contradict each other. And what Colossians tells us here is, to use this picture, in any case, Jesus is the whole elephant. There's no part of who God is which remained hidden when Christ was revealed. The fullness of God was seen in Jesus. He is the exact representation of what God is like. We've not only seen part of God through that mirror in the hallway, we've seen who God is truly, and Jesus is the final and definitive revelation. So that, he, this incredible Christ is incredibly the image of God. Secondly, also incredibly, he's in charge. It says in verse 15 also that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we think of the firstborn, we only tend to think in our culture about the kind of literal order in which people were born. So firstborn simply means the oldest, the one who came into being first of all. But in the ancient world, as in our royal family, there are privileges that go along with being the firstborn. The firstborn gets to be in charge The firstborn has special privileges. And so the Greek word that's used here for firstborn has that meaning. It doesn't simply mean the one who came into existence first. Uh, Actually, it also means the one who has special privileges, the one who is 
in charge because they were there before anyone else was there. And that's the sense in which Paul means it here. Because we know that Jesus was not created at a moment in time. He wasn't the firstborn and then lots of others were born. The Bible tells us that Jesus has existed from all time. He is eternal God. And it's here in this passage, in verse, uh, where is it? 17, my notes. Oh, it's there. It is there. It fell out for a minute and it's come back. Um, The beginning of verse 17 says, he is before all things. And that, that doesn't mean Uh, He was made before all the other things were made. His being before all things is, there's all things, the whole of creation, all that was made, there's all the things, and before that, there's Jesus. So this word firstborn doesn't in any sense undermine the truth that Jesus has been from all eternity. It's speaking about the fact that since he was there first, naturally, he's in charge of everything. That's what the person who gets there first gets to be, quite naturally and by right. So incredibly, he's in charge of everything. And so again, he's not just a replacement for Adam, like, well, there was Adam, and he didn't do quite a good enough job, and neither of we has his offspring, so let's have another go. Jesus existed before Adam, and is doing a remarkable new thing in coming to earth. It's not just a fresh start for humanity in Jesus, but something even more radical, as God himself becomes human and creates a whole new kind of humanity, a perfect humanity that had never been seen before. So Jesus was not just a Jew who lived in the first century. He was incredibly the perfect image of God because he was God himself. And, incredibly, he is in charge of everything. Maybe we just need to, to slow down a bit and think, what it, for Jesus to be in charge of everything is quite incredible. In our daily lives, we don't tend to live as if Jesus is really in charge of everything. Uh, we try to fix things ourselves. Uh, we do things without reference to him. We don't always pray. We uh, don't really think that he's going to uh, take control of things uh, in the way that we live day by day. We often live as if he's not really in charge. Uh, there are, I don't know if there are some things that you hear other people pray for. You, think, you can't pray for that. Sometimes that happens when somebody prays for the weather. And uh, I think, oh, you can't pray for that. And then you think about it scientifically. How can that? There are other people over there that need rain if we pray for the sun. How's that going to work? Uh, but God is in charge of everything, and his being in charge means that uh, everything is under his control. Okay, so incredibly, he's in charge. It's quite incredible that Prince Charles will one day be in charge of things. Even more incredible that Jesus is in charge of the cosmos. He is the incredible initiator and he is incredibly involved. Verses 16 and 17 say that by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. There's this list of of created things, things in heaven, things on earth, 
things that are visible, things that are invisible, and then this list, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. The point is just that whatever you can think of, Jesus created it. Jesus created the earth. Did he create the heavens? Oh, yes, he did. So he made all the things we can see. Did he make the things you can't see? The invisible? He made them too, whatever they are. So does that include all of these spiritual powers and things that we know exist and that people pray? Yeah, he made everything. Whatever's been made, Jesus made it. He made absolutely everything. It was made by him and for him. It's worth noting it was not made from him. The Greeks had this idea that God was kind of the source of the universe and that that one day when God decided to create, that the world kind of emanated from him, like kind of alien-like, you know, the world came into, out of God so that the world is kind of a bit of God and then the rest of God that's left being God is God. And they talked about God is, and the world as the head and the body, that the, sort of, the world has sort of come out. But that's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is it was create, the world was created by Jesus Christ and for him, but it wasn't made out of him. It's not the case that the world that we live in is somehow divine. God, God didn't make it that way. He made it out of nothing, and it was only into people that he placed a spirit. So everything apart from God is created. In the spiritual realms, these thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, they're created. And if sometimes we feel that the spiritual battles that we face are uncertain and that maybe we're going to lose, we need to take this truth on board, that these things are created. Whatever's against God now, whatever has rebelled against God, he was its creator. There is not an equal kind of thing. There's God, and then there's Satan, and then there's angels, and then there's demons, and then there's us kind of caught in the middle somewhere, and who knows where it will end up. God is over all. All of that, he he knows exactly how it ticks. He knows what makes Satan tick, and Satan has the slightest, faintest idea what makes God tick and what God can do. It's It's not equal, because God is the creator. And uh, there is this clear distinction between God as creator and the world that we are in, the creation. They're not the same. And there's a danger that sometimes we might agree with God that the world is good, but then get it out of perspective and just think the world is so good, we just get totally absorbed in it. And it's like we end up adoring the world and worshipping the world in some aspect whether it's the music of the world or the films that the world uh, produces or the human body, maybe someone's body in particular, I don't know. We can get absorbed in created things uh, and get them out of perspective when there is this clear divide between God as creator, who is to be worshipped, who is to be adored, and then everything that he has made It derives its value. Everything that's made, everything that God has made is good, but it derives its value from him. He is worthy. We sing that, don't we? He is the one who is worthy. He's the one to be worshipped. So God initiated everything that exists, God initiated. But this is amazing. 
He's also intimately involved in everything. It says here that in him all things hold together. Just have this image of standing here looking at everyone. That, you know, if Jesus withdrew his supporting hand from creation, that we'd all just sort of fly off into the nether regions of the cosmos. You know, because we're held together. Our staying together is in him. It's in him that we are held together. It's in, in him that this building is held together. It's in him that our city and our county and our nation, and the, it's, it's in him that it's, without him, it would all fly apart and lead to chaos. Jesus Christ is not remote from his creation. He didn't set it in motion, and then there's like tick-tock clockwork laws, and then God only gets involved occasionally. The fact that he holds everything together means that if he just took his hand away, everything would fly apart. The world as we know it would cease to exist. He is intimately involved. Think of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And our focus is very much on there's two fish and five loaves, and wow, fed 5,000 people. But there's as much miracle and as much power of the Spirit in those two little fish growing from eggs and living their little lives, gaining the flavor (laughs) that everyone enjoyed. Um, It's as much a miracle that God's involved in the everyday as that he's involved in the miraculous. And sometimes we need to remember that, because sometimes there are particular things that we're asking God to break through in. Maybe there's a healing that we're desperately praying for. Maybe there's financial provision that we're desperate to see. Maybe there are family members who are just walking a bad path, and we're saying, oh, God, would you break in, and would you change this person's destiny? We're we're praying for breakthrough. Of course we pray for breakthrough. That's what we do. It's what Jesus said. Keep praying like a persistent widow, not getting justice. Keep praying. Of course we do that. But if we're not careful, we forget that all that we have is from God. Whatever sickness I have, the fact that I've still got both my arms is down to God's upholding of me. And I'm glad. I have so much to thank God for. I mean, we pray for sunshine which is a prayer that the clouds would go, but all the time the sun's going on across our sky. We're spinning around it. It's all going, God's upholding. There's so much. There's always so much to thank God for. And if we're not careful, our desire to see the kingdom of God come, especially those who are a bit visionary and like, come on, you know, let's see it happen. The student group, befriend student group that's got a vision to raise the dead and heal the sick and that, you know, that can get a bit wearing sometimes. To be honest, you're like, we've not seen any dead people raising me. have been at it a whole two weeks. <laughs> you know, you wait till you've been praying it a bit longer. You know, it's like we can lose perspective. The reality is that everyone who's alive is alive by the hand of God. Yeah. We thank God for all of his everyday mercies in which he's intimately involved. In him, all things hold together. And then this passage just takes us to some quite surprising places because all this stuff's about the cosmos, the world that we live in. And then Paul just starts to talk about the church in the middle of that. It's a bit of a shock. The commentaries that you read on this passage, well, many of them 
will suggest that the phrase here, the church, is a mistake. They will say, they do say, that it's so odd to find the words the church in the middle of this little hymn to Jesus that probably someone put it in there later and then it kind of got stuck. That's not true. Uh, But it's such a surprise to people to find this description of the cosmic Jesus and then right in the middle of it we start talking about the church. Why are we talking about the church here? I thought we were talking about the world and the universe and everything and life and suddenly church is in the middle. Well, Paul put it there and he put it there very deliberately. Because when you look at it carefully, these few verses run in two parallel teachings. One set of parallels, uh, the first little list is about the world. Oh, I should be on that by now. The first little list is about the cosmos. And then the second little list is about the church. And they fit together. So let's have a little look at this. These things are all there in these verses. So the first thing is about creation. Right at the beginning, it says... Jesus is the firstborn over creation. These are things about the cosmos. And he's in charge of everything. He is the initiator of creation. He is the creator. And he holds the cosmos together. That's what we've read in sort of verses 15 to 17. The next few verses go on to say these things. That he is firstborn from the dead. Which is a whole new thing that Paul has to say. And in that context, he is supreme over all. It says, firstborn from among the dead, verse 18, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is the initiator of new life. When he rose from the dead, a whole new order of living being came into being, of whom Jesus was the first. He is a resurrect. He's not just a living God. He is the resurrected God. And he is the firstborn from the dead means first of the resurrected ones. We will be. Well, we kind of get it in two parts, don't we? We've been born again, so the, the, the decision's done, it's sorted, our future is secure. New life has come to all who believe. This new life, this resurrection life has come to us. There's more to come. Either Jesus has to come back or we have to die first. You know, but there's resurrection life in all its fullness coming to us. Jesus was the first. Having once initiated creation in his death and resurrection, he's initiated a new kind of life which we get to be part of. So this is starting to talk about us the church. And it says there that he reconciles people to himself. Verses 19 and 20. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now there you go. When we think about the cross, we tend to think of the cross as doing people good. That's how we think about it. Jesus died for lost people, for people in need of salvation. And that's true. But there's something here that Paul has to say, which is just, it is another extraordinary truth. 
that through the cross, he says, God was reconciling to himself all things. Not, not just people. People matter. But God's reconciling to himself all things. Whatever has been corrupted in the world, whatever is out of place in the world, whatever is fragmented and broken, whatever is evil, at the cross, Jesus was dealing with all of those things. Not just the bit of it that's in people, but the bit of it that through Adam's sin got into the cosmos itself. So when Jesus died and then rose from the dead, it was like a spiritual shockwave went through the whole cosmos. His death changed the cosmic reality. No one and nothing had ever before that died and then come up the other side with resurrection life. And with this emergence of resurrection life on that first Easter day, there was a shockwave of this new kind of life that went right through the cosmos. Everything was changed. God's plan is not just to save us from the world. It's great you're now saved. We'll kind of keep you all together and make sure you don't get lost along the way. And then it'll all be fine, you know, when we get to heaven. Actually, Jesus died for the whole world, the created order. God had made it, and he'd made it good, and he's not giving up on it. When the new earth and the new heaven come, as Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about, it's a renewed earth. It's, a, it's the earth that we're in now, transformed just as our bodies, such as they are, are going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye at the blast of a trumpet into resurrection bodies in the same way the whole earth, the created order, is going to be transformed into a new earth. It doesn't just get thrown away. There was a kind of place you lived for a bit. It was a bit rubbish. We'll just get rid of that. God made it. It's good. And Jesus died for it too. Now, the transformation that will overtake the earth is going to be pretty radical. In, I mean, in the same way that our bodies are going to be radically transformed, the transformation of the earth is going to be so radical that, it, that it's sometimes talked about as being a garment rolled up. And then it's like a whole new thing comes. It's not like you could plot and say, so there's, there's, there's Cowley in the new earth. I wonder what the new Cowley is going to be like. Uh, you know, I wonder what a redeemed and restored Liverpool United, uh, Liverpool Football Club, rather, will be like. Will they be? Will they always win? I don't. It's not at that level of detail. You know, we might be intrigued to know um, how our feeble efforts will be transformed in the new creation. But it, it's not. It's, it's going to be such a radical transformation that that kind of thinking isn't really very helpful. It's. This earth is going to be renewed, but radically so. So radically so that, you know when Jesus was asked that question about, um, so a woman marries a bloke, he dies, she marries his brother. He dies, she marries his brother, he dies, she marries his brother. And this is a question about the resurrection. And the clever people say, ah, you see, that's why resurrection could never work. Because it would get all messy, wouldn't it, in the afterlife? 
And then Jesus says, no, no, no. The point here is you've got not the faintest idea what resurrection life is like. So pe- people won't marry like that in the afterlife. So you've got a f- an idea of what the world's like. Now, if something as fundamental as marriage, marriage is there right in Genesis 1, isn't it? Man and woman joined marriage, marriage right there at the heart of what it is to be human. If something as fundamental as marriage doesn't work in heaven, it's not, or maybe it does, but it's not like you know it. One and one, something else going on. If something as fundamental as that about human nature has changed in the new earth, then I think we can do with not speculating too much about the rest. But just thank God that he died on the cross to sort everything out. When I was growing up, we used to worry about a nuclear holocaust, particularly because I was living in Cheltenham, which is where GCHQ, the government spy base, is based. And we were brought up being told that when the Russians sent nuclear warheads to the UK, they'd put them far enough away from Cheltenham that it wouldn't blow up GCHQ, and so we'd all die slowly of radiation poisoning. <laughs> I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's what I, I grew up being told. So I grew up... I don't, I don't know how many of you lived through that season of life towards the end of the Cold War. We thought, it could well happen, you know. It's a build-up of arms. We worried about nuclear holocaust. Obviously, we do worry now about the fact that our world is warming up. Um, we worry about global warming. Um, but you know what? All of those things find a context in a much bigger story. The world is not going to go to rack and ruin. I don't know what will happen with global warming. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, I don't. Who knows? Who knows? And we have responsibilities for how our actions and our consumption affect the lives of other people around the world. So I'm not dismissing the significance of that. And yet there's a bigger story. There's a bigger story. In Ephesians 1, it says that God made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. And that is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Everything's coming together. It's going, you know, it's like the future is bright. You know, the end of the story is that Jesus wins and everything, the end of the story is that his cross and his resurrection really does solve everything. (laughs) Everything, everything. Even global warming. Jesus died for global warming. Isn't that a thought? He's bigger. He's bigger than maybe we've allowed ourselves to think. Well, This thing about the church is right in the middle of this. The head of the body, the church. The church is the group of people who have already come under the headship of Christ. So God's plan is to bring everything under Christ as one head. Well, we're already there. So we're like the point of the the spear or something. we're, We're at the leading edge. The church is at the leading edge of what God is doing in the world as a whole. We've already joined in with a purpose that's going to apply to everyone. Now, if we look at the church, we might feel a bit up or a bit down. Uh, Obviously, in the role that I play, I have people come and say to me, oh, how are things going in OCC? And the, the truth is, I can give two very different answers. I can either look one way... I need to be careful which way I look around the room now. Um, I can look one way... 
and I can look at all the things that are wonderful, the people that have been, I've heard, you know, people have been healed here the last few Sunday mornings, and people that are friends of ours meeting God and choosing to follow him, and I look, ah, you know, what's going on in OCC is it's all brilliant. God's amazing, it's brilliant. And I can look the other way, and, uh, and I can see the people that are stuck, the people that have not been healed, the people who are actually giving in to sin, um, making bad choices, and, you know, and I can go, oh, it's absolutely awful. Does anyone else want my job? It's awful. You know, you can, and, you, when you, and all of us can do that in looking at the church. There are things to be encouraged by and things that are profoundly discouraging. If we look at the church, we probably won't conclude, at least not on a daily basis, that we are at the forefront of God's cosmic purposes. We may occasionally, but possibly not every day. And yet that is the truth. People have written off the church any number of times, you know. They see things going down a little bit and they think, oh, that's the end of it. And it has not happened yet. It's quite remarkable how the church has persisted and grown over 2,000 years. We're still here because the cross of Christ on which we are founded is the linchpin of the whole cosmos. So we're not going away. Can't happen. It can't happen. Sometimes we might feel when we share the gospel with people that we're trying to persuade a few more people to believe an unlikely story, to have a bit more spiritual experience like we've had. Uh, But the truth is that because the gospel is about the whole world, it's for everyone. There's no one that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for because of what Jesus did at the cross. So, Can we read those verses through together again, verses 15 to 20, and just let it sink in. Just let it sink in. This is the truth of God. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Yeah, let's join in. Let's go for it. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's stop there. So, wow, that's good, isn't it? That's really, really good. Um, but it's, all, it's also a little bit mind-blowing. I mean, and it seems that after having written that, Paul was like, oh, uh, the Colossian church might now be a little bit disorientated. It's like their minds may be a little bit blown by all of that, and they might be wondering what exactly to do with all of that. So he quite quickly does this for them. A kind of a, he reminds them of the gospel. And he says, like, there's all of that there, right? where you are, okay, you're here. This is where you stand. That's all true. It's all good. What are you going to do with it? Well, well, here you are. 
This is where you are. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So he comes back to it and says, that's all true about Jesus. It's hugely encouraging. It gives us the right perspective. What do we do with it? Well, we stand firm in Jesus. And we say, what we've known to be true, that Jesus died for us, for us, at the cross. The fact that he did that for us uh, means we can come to him and say, you know, I'm forgiven, free from accusation, presented holy. I've been changed by what God has done for me without blemish reconciled to God, have a relationship with God. Those things, which are the bread and butter of our everyday Christian life, we come back to those. We don't have to spend the next however many chapters sort of wondering about how the world works. Paul doesn't go there. Some of us might be tempted to. (laughs) Um, He comes right back and says, the thing that is certain for you, the thing that you need to be standing firm in, established and firm, is what Jesus has done for you. So put your feet on that, and that is how you are going to participate in this big cosmic reality. This is where you are. This is where you stand. So we're going to finish this morning by uh, doing just that, reminding ourselves again of what God has done for us, what Jesus did for us at the cross. We're going to break bread. We're going to share wine together which is for us, our remembrance of how this cross, which has cosmic significance, saves us. It saves us, and we're going to imbibe that afresh this morning as we break bread. So I'm going to hand back over to Keith, who will lead us.